second. Hey guys. Yeah. <laughs> My computer was not recording. recording. <laughs> oh great. Oh okay. Jason oh, Robbins. It, it wasn't me. It's this program. It was it was rolling, but then I looked at the recording and it was it wasn't moving. Ah, let's do this real quick. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Stupid computer. And my other computer's on the fritz. That's why I'm, I'm doing Oh, this. God. Ah, here we go. All right. Three, two, one. Ooh, do you like this show? Do you want more of it? The only way we can do it is by people like you. Head over to patreon.com slash ompodcast and throw us a couple bucks a month to keep the lights on and keep us fed. Patreon.com slash ompodcast. Podcast. Oh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> this is take two here at the Open Micers Podcast. My name is Jason Robbins. I'm definitely his better fucking half Jacob Craig. <laughs> <laughs> And our oh, guest, man. once again, after his, you know, answering already, like, what, two questions <laughs> five minutes into the podcast, is Mr. Howard Bloom. He was a music publicist in the 70s and 80s for bands such as Prince, Sticks, Billy Joel, and has published around seven different books. We'll talk to him. We'll try to cover as many as those of, of those as we can today. Please welcome Howard Bloom to the podcast once again, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Howard, Jacob. I'm Thanks, very hey, 32, I'm very sorry for Jason. Thirty-two episodes, and I haven't messed up yet. So let's that, uh, just count. Let's so just let's explain to the off. audience what we're talking about. <laughs> so there we were soaring mightily five minutes into the podcast, covering territory you wouldn't believe, and all of a sudden, Jason looks at his computer and realizes it's not recording, and we have to start all yes. over again. Ugh, so, I'm so sorry. Ah, well, was... <laughs> my most abusive relationship is with my computer. Um, I have my girlfriend on the phone with me all day, and she has to listen to me arguing with my computer, cursing at my computer, um, <laughs> infinitely frustrated at my computer because I designed my first computer. I co-designed my first computer when I was 12 years old. And in those days, a computer was the size of a mm -hmm. townhouse. Um <laughs> And, and it won some science fair awards. So I have expectations of a computer and I expect it to do everything instantly. <laughs> That's what I hoped for back in the 1950s, yeah. and 19, when I was working on this first computer of mine. And guess what? We have added zillions of, mic uh, of individual transistors to the microchip since that time. We have gone infinitely beyond what existed then in the way of software. And your computer still refuses to do the logical thing, and it never, ever works instantly. You know what you need to do? You need to write that algorithm. You need to write that <laughs> algorithm the to make computers. Algorithm. Like, the, the recording program I had, I hit record, but there's, there's, two, uh, there's two counters. One that uh, said that they should be going at the same time. Uh, but one of them was not moving. But for some reason, it was not recording. And I don't know what happened. But, right. but <laughs> hey, the, the saving grace of all this is we are live on Twitch, yes. correct? Oh, so the YouTube that. version of this episode <laughs> is, the is going to be everything we said before <laughs> Jason royally fucked up. Yeah. And if you're listening to us on Libsyn, go check out Jason Robbins' 
YouTube yeah. channel to to watch the full podcast and all. So as well, we instead of, started, instead of writing the <laughs> ultimate algorithm, yeah, to solve this kind of problem with computers, I've written the ultimate theory. It's called the Grand Unified Theory of Everything in the Universe, including the human soul. And then uh, the producer of a Judas Priest film came along and said, "That's not the correct name." If you really want to get it, what your theory contains, the title has to be the grand unified theory of everything in the universe, including sex, violence, and the human soul. Wow. So that's what I've got. And it's taken, it's taken pretty seriously in some circles. Um, my, I have a collaborator in theoretical physics at the Keldish Institute of Applied Mathematics of the Russian Academy of Sciences. And he says this theory is going to force us to throw away everything we know in modern math and start all over again. You're going to make um, me have to learn a new math. <laughs> no, this is a simple theory, and it's all in English. There's no uh, math in Okay. It. So that's a little something I've been working on since I was 12 years old. Fantastic. And it's taken seriously enough. Here's a movie. It's called um, The Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom. It's a 66-minute documentary. And it's won two awards. The guy who made it, Charlie Hoxie, is the winner of three Emmy Awards. And the film, The Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom, has won Best Picture at the Design Science Film Festival in California. And it's won Best Feature Length um, Documentary at the Not Film Festival in Italy. So, and there's a Howard Bloom Institute in the process of formation where this Grand Unified Theory is taken fairly seriously. Yeah. Wow! So I'm looking long at story a... short, you're the, the smartest guest we've ever had on <laughs> yes. the podcast. <laughs> I don't know about many things. I am dumb as a brick. Um, what does that make going? us? <laughs> well, yeah, when that, I get makes... to my refrigerator and I'm looking for the milk, I can't find it. And when somebody comes over and tries to help me, it turns out I couldn't find it because it was smacked dab in the middle of the refrigerator on the top shelf in the most visible location in the entire refrigerator. So that's how stupid I am. <laughs> so when we started out, we were talking about you had, you had a, a really big career as a, a public relations a publicist for, for Michael Jackson, Cindy Lauper, Talking Heads, Lionel Richie, ZZ Top, uh, Bette Midler, ACDC, Simon Garfunkel, John Mellencamp, Earth, Wind and Fire, Bob Marley and Run DMC. And that was interesting enough. And then you hit us with all the like neuroscience, like the start that over again. So everybody, okay. can, it's amazing. So all of this rock and roll activity was a very, very lucky accident. And it happened because I got into, I got into science at the age of 10. Um, there was a book that was open in my lap in my family's living room in Buffalo, New York. And it was a book I'd never seen before. You know, you know the location of every one of the books in your house because your parents always keep them in exactly the same place. And this book had never been there before. And I opened it and it said the first two rules of science are these. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gave the story of Galileo being willing to go to the stake to defend his truth, which 30 years later I would find out wasn't true. Galileo's friend was the Pope. And he... He abjured. He said everything he'd ever written was wrong in order to get nine years of house arrest instead of the stake. But I needed the heroic, mythic version of the story. And that's what I got from this book. And the second law of science, the second rule of science, it says, is the truth at any price, including the price of your life. 
and look at things, look for things that are invisible to you, that you and everybody around you take for granted. Flush them into the realm of visibility and then proceed from there. And it gave the example of Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who invented the microscope and who used it to look at pond water and discovered that we were sharing a world with an entire separate world of invisible animals. Um, he called them animalcules. So we were skipping. And then when I was 12, I, I accumulated my first scientific credentials. I mean, at 10, I started in microbiology and theoretical physics, thanks to Galileo and von Leeuwenhoek. Um, when I was 12, I co-designed the computer that won a bunch of science awards. I built my first Boolean algebra machine. I was schlepped off to the University of Buffalo to meet with the head of the, grad, the graduate physics department. Now look, what graduate physics department head wants to waste time with a 12-year-old? Give okay. me a break. So my guess is it was supposed to be a five-minute courtesy meeting to, to you know, throw a sop to my mother. But it turned into an hour-long meeting because we were discussing the hottest topic in science at the time, Big Bang versus Steady State Theory of the Universe and the interpretation of the Doppler shift. And when we came out of his office, he put his hand on my shoulder, stood behind me and said to my mom, you don't have to save for grad school for him. He'll get fellowships uh, in grad school in theoretical physics, any school he wants. Um, so I was off to a good start and I was being tutored in outside the box science by the guy who designed the valves, the head of R&D for a company called Moog Valve Corporation that made the valves for the first plane to break the sound barrier, the Bell X-1, and the first plane to take a human being to the edge of space, the Bell X-2. And when I was 16, as you said, I, I was doing research at, graduate, or, or at um, the largest cancer research institute in the world, the Roswell Park Memorial Cancer Research Institute. And I came up with a theory at the beginning, middle, and end of the, of the universe that explained or that predicted dark energy, something that wouldn't be discovered for another 38 years. And if you go on YouTube and you look up Howard Bloom, Big Bang, you'll see a five and a half minute animation of the theory. It's so simple, it's ridiculous. You'll get it immediately. Mm -hmm. And it's had 800,000 hits. So the question is, how the hell did I get from that into rock and roll? And the answer is, at the age of 12, I became fascinated by the transcendent experience, by the ecstatic experience, by the kind of religious experience you get when you're in a holy roller church church and you're seized by Christ, and you end up frothing at the mouth and jerking up and down, and finally writhing on the floor, just in the grip of the God, in the grip of Christ. And I took off on an ex a scientific expedition looking for the gods inside of us. It wasn't the only thing that I, that I did, because I've, I've been published or have uh, given lectures at scholarly conferences on 12 different scientific fields. So everything from quantum physics and cosmology, which you would expect to evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, um, systems dynamics, um, information science, and of all things, governance. Um, so I try to take all the sciences and instead of becoming a specialist and digging a gopher holes so deep that all I can see is the darkness around me and the dirt next to my eyeballs, um, I try to soar over the landscape of all those specializations like an eagle and put use those gopher holes as pixels in a big picture and see the grand landscape that's my job in in science so here i was fascinated by the ecstatic experience and several years or many years later i graduated magna cum laude phi beta kappa from nyu with just what 
the head of the graduate physics department had predicted, fellowships at four different universities, except they weren't fellowships in uh, theoretical physics. They were fellowships in something that didn't have a name yet called neuroscience. I was going to have to paste the program together myself. And I had a sudden realization. I've been in school for a very long time at this point. And if I go to grad school, it's going to be Auschwitz for the mind. Auschwitz, a concentration camp where people were killed, burned in an, or, or gassed in an oven. And it's going to be concentration camp for the mind because I am fascinated by the ecstatic experience and how it fits in to this vast panorama that comes from all of the sciences. And if I go to grad school, I will never get anywhere near that experience at all. I will be giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students in exchange for a psychology credit. And how many ecstatic experiences are you going to see in that room with 22 college students? Zero, zilch, never. Um, and I had an opportunity. I had been grabbed by the poet in residence at NYU in my junior year. And he said, look, Bloom, wait until everybody else leaves the classroom, close the door, sit there, pointing at the bowling out seat. I need to talk to you. So I waited until everybody left. I closed the door. I sat in that seat. He said, look, you, last year I asked you to be on the staff of the literary magazine. You never even showed up. This year I'm telling you, you are the literary magazine. You are the editor of the literary magazine, and you don't even have a faculty advisor. The minute you walk out that door, you're it. And so I now walk out that door. So when I walked out the door, I looked incredibly confused. And another kid came along who I didn't know and said, you look upset about something. Can I help you? And I said, yes, I've just, I've just been named the Azure of the literary magazine. Because my view of literary magazines was this. They're horrible. They have these eggshell blue covers that will put you to sleep. They have a choice of typeface that indicates absolutely no sense of aesthetics on the part of the person who chose it. Um, literary magazines are so soporific, so sleep-inducing, that if you found a room with a rip-roaring orgy um, and you threw a literary magazine into that room, the room would empty in five minutes. <laughs> so, so, so this student uh, said, well, why don't we go for a cup of coffee? Now, no kids ever want to be in Buffalo, New York, and my parents didn't have time for me and didn't have the interest. And so I never grew up among human beings. My bedroom in Buffalo had lab rats, guinea pigs, and guppies. And lab rats, guinea pigs, and guppies don't do normal human rituals like having a cup of coffee. So I had no idea what that was. But I meekly followed him down to a coffee shop, ordered a glass of water. He ordered a cup of coffee. And he asked me one of the most important questions I've ever been asked in my life. If you could do anything you wanted with this literary magazine, he said, what would it be? And I answered a picture book. So in addition to going out and finding a crew of literary people as a staff, I found a staff of artists. And when I graduated with those four fellowships, um, it was the beginning of the summer. I hadn't gotten a summer job yet. I walked into the apartment of the best of the artists in, on the Lower East Side. And there, the room was empty. There were no furniture. Um, it had a wall-to-wall -wall carpet, and sitting on that wall-to-wall -wall carpet was my artist, his wife, and his three-year-old, and they were all crying. And I asked, what's wrong? And he said, well, 
Um, they've repossessed our furniture. They're turning off our electricity. They're turning off our telephone. And we're being evicted from our apartment. I said, what? Your work is fucking amazing. If anyone sees it, they're going to give you jobs. If you get jobs, you can pay your rent. Give me your portfolio. I'll do it in two weeks. And then I'll get my summer job. And he said, well, if, if you're going to include me, then you also have to include my best friend from Boston who moved down here with me to start an art studio. His friend's work was nauseating. But I wanted him to have his rent. So I said yes. And his friend threw in his wife, who was actually a terrific designer. And I started taking the portfolio out. And I realized I was going to every ad agency there was. I was going to every magazine there was. I was going to every publishing house and every music company, every record company there was, trying to find work for these artists. And it gave me a periscope position into the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made. It gave me a periscope position into the land where the gods are, into the land of ecstatic experience, um, into the land, ultimately, of something I knew zero about, rock and roll. Hmm. So I took rock and roll very seriously. I, I was, what, what, what I really, the story is a long one. We only have 38 minutes. But, um, but when I was 12 years old, you know, the other kids wanted to have nothing to do with me. And one day, something happened that had never happened before. A girl swiveled her face in my direction. And then she did something even more startling. She made eye contact. And she said, I told my mom, you understand the theory of relativity. Well, frankly, Jason, Jacob, I did not understand the theory of relativity. But there was no way I could confess that. Because the only thing I had going for me with my classmates who hated me was that they called me the sickly scientist. So as soon as school got out, I jumped on my bicycle. I pedaled to the local library. The librarians literally knew me better than my mother did. And because I was in there all the time. And I say, give me everything you've got on relativity. And they went through the stacks and they shoved two books across the desk. And I put them in my bicycle clamp, pedaled home as fast as I could. And started, there was a great big fat book by Einstein and two collaborators. And there was a little skinny book by Einstein all on its own. And I had learned at that point in life, I'd been reading two books a day since I was 10. And I had learned that if you tackle the most difficult thing, it pays off. If you go through a book you don't think you understand, by the time you get to the end, you have understood something. So I was busy working my way through the big fat book, which is only seven words of English on a page, all the rest of mathematical equations. And Jason and Jacob, I have never understood a mathematical equation in my life, aside from E equals MC squared. Um, so, eight, eight, <laughs> so eight o'clock came around and I had a sudden realization. I've got two hours until my mom puts me to sleep. And I'm not getting anywhere. I've read 50 pages of this book. I still don't understand the theory of relativity. So I turned to the little skinny book. And in the introduction, Albert Einstein, it felt like he reached out through the pages of the book, grabbed me by the front of my shirt, put his nose up to mine, and said, schmuck, listen up. To be a genius, it's not enough to come up with a theory only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory, then express it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So Albert Einstein, my hero, was telling me 
through the pages of a book. Listen up. If you're going to be an original scientific thinker, um, you're going to have to be a writer and not just any writer. You're going to have to be a delicious writer. You're going to have to be able to write so well that once people have read the first two pages of your book, they can't stop until they get to the end. So um, when I was taking the work out of my artists, I really wanted to write for magazines. I had already written for the uh, head of the uh, Middlesex County Mental Research, um, something or other. Um, I'd written scientific stuff. I'd written for the Boy Scouts of America, which is ironic because I was thrown out of the Boy Scouts at the age of 11 for incompetence at Morse code. And if they'd wanted, they could have thrown me out for incompetence at not tying. Um, and, and I really wanted to write for magazines because that's where the kind of writing Albert Einstein had said I must do took place. And I was also co-designing my clothes in those days. It was the late 1960s. You could get away with anything. <laughs> and um, so I walked in to the office of an underground fashion magazine that was being bankrolled by Baron Woolman, who had bankrolled Rolling Stone. And um, when I got out of the freight elevator, it was in the garment district, um, I expected to open my portfolio on a desktop and have the three women in the room ooh and ah. And instead, the minute I got out of the elevator, they stopped dead in their tracks and their jaws dropped. And they looked at the outfit from the designer I was co-designing with and said, have you got four of these? And I said, yes, I have a whole closet full of them. Why? They said, do you think you could write an article about these? And hey, that's what I've been looking for, right? That's what I've been practicing for since I was 12 years old. So I went home that night and I wrote the article and I turned it in and they made me a contributing editor. And then one of the other contributing editors started her own magazine, Natural Lifestyles, and she made me a contributing editor. And so one day I was covering a parapsychology conference. I did 175 articles, all told, for the first magazine, which is Rags. Um, so for Natural Lifestyles, I was covering a parapsychology convention one day. And I had just gotten a really lucrative gig for my artists. So they had decided to save money for themselves by throwing me out of the studio. So I was suddenly free to do anything I wanted to do. So there I was at a parapsychology conference with a notepad glued to my left hand, constantly taking notes because I have no memory whatsoever. And when something color colorful happens, if I don't write it down, I will never remember it in a million years. And a kid walked up to me and said, how would you like to edit a magazine? Well, hey, you know, to write for natural lifestyles and rags and still advance the cause of these artists, the studio. Um, I had been getting up at six in the morning, going naked to a giant Remington uh, manual typewriter. Every key you had a pound with a sledgehammer practically to get the function. Um, and I had been writing like a madman, then putting on my, my Susan Harris and a co-designed clothes at eight o'clock, going into Manhattan, doing the work of the art studio, coming home at night and sitting there in front of this manual typewriter again until it was 11 o'clock at night. And I was getting tired. So if I edited a magazine, I wouldn't have to get up at six o'clock in the morning anymore. I could do my writing during the day. So I never even asked what the magazine was about, because if I had written for the Boy Scouts, I wrote their handbooks on stalking and tracking and camouflage. I figured if I love my audience and if I have adequate research materials, I can write on anything. So I went to a meeting with the magazine publisher. We didn't have Google in those days. 
you couldn't simply look the guy up to figure out what the hell his magazine was. I had no clue. And when I walked into his office, which had seven windows overlooking the, the river, whatever river that is, on the uh, west side, east side of Manhattan, um, I mean, you could look all the way up and see boats coming down from two miles up of the river and you could see them go down two miles down toward the ocean. And, um, and he said, the magazine's called Circus. And I thought, okay, I've never been enthusiastic about clowns and elephants. But, hey, if I could write for the Boy Scouts, I can write about anything. I used to uh, um, read Circus magazine and, back in the 80s when I was a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> and then he revealed what it was, a rock and roll magazine. Mm -hmm. So I totally reinvented that magazine using my science tools, of all things. And using this, using empathy, using the ability to relate to my audience. While I felt out, I invented market research techniques to feel out my audience so I could tune myself, myself to their frequency because emotion is what it's all about. It's not about statistics, not just about numbers. And so I created a new magazine format and my publisher said yes to going with it. And we increased in circulation 211% in 12 months. So that's the circus. So I was responsible for the circus that you knew um, when you were a kid. And then one day I get this big envelope from Chet Flippo, who's one of the founding editors of Rolling Stone, who founded their New York office, among other things. And it had six pages of typewritten paper in it. And I wondered, why the hell is this important person sending this envelope to me? It's very expensive to send things by messenger, which is what he had done. And I open it up and read, and it's six pages on how this guy working in a converted windowless broom closet managed to do a Rumpelstiltskin managed to spin straw into gold and invented, according to Chef Flippo, an entirely new magazine genre, the heavy metal magazine. So that's what I did. And that's what got me, what allowed me to get into rock and roll. And it turned out here I was looking for the gods inside of us and the ecstatic experience. And, uh, and all of a sudden I was in the land where the gods are. Cause I went to my first Fleetwood Mac concert as a VIP. Um, and Fleetwood Mac was the dying blues band. People don't remember those days. There were two major blues bands, Chicken Shack and Fleetwood Mac. They mm -hmm. were co-equal with each other. And both of them were dying, and we all knew they'd be gone in a year or two. Um, this is before Stevie Nicks joined the band. And um, so there was Fleetwood Mac performing on stage. First of all, I noticed what happened with the audience. What happened with the audience is you walk into a concert hall. You're very self-conscious. You take your seat. You want the people behind you and the people on either side of you to think you're cool. So you act as cool as you possibly can. And then the lights go down and the music starts and you forget about the people behind you and the people on either side of you. And you are sucked into some sort of a fireball much, much bigger than yourself that is created between the audience and the performer on stage. And it is the transcendent experience. And then a half an hour into the show, the electricity went down on the stage. The oh, no. sound went down. The lights went down. Everything went down. And the electricity went up. The lights went up above our heads, went up on the audience. So that's threatening to bring back that sense of self-consciousness about thinking only of how the people behind you and on either side of you feel about you, not being part of that larger fireball that takes place when you meld 
with the person on stage. And Mick Fleetwood, who was the six foot four inch gangly spring bean of a man, <laughs> um, walked to the front of the proscenium, the, sec- the center of the proscenium, and he said, fuck it. With, he did this without a microphone. But remember, Carnegie Hall was designed mm-hmm. to have acoustics before the days of microphones. Yeah. And he said, fuck it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to rock and roll. <laughs> and that galvanized us. It created an even higher ecstatic experience for us somehow. It brought us into even a larger social hole than we'd been sucked into before. And I knew this kind of experience already. Because when I was 16 years old, I was at a high school where this is all the kids who hated me when I was a younger kid before I got into this fancy private school my parents sent me to because I hated the public schools. And um, and when it came to voting for class president, vice president, senior secretary and treasurer, those were popularity positions. Um, the most popular kid got to be president. The, next, the second most popular kid got to be vice president. The most popular girl got to be secretary, and the most popular Jew got to be treasurer. Mm. And I didn't have a shot at any of those positions because <laughs> I was the least popular person around. But when it came to doing something functional, actually getting something done, these popular kids did not have a clue. And there was a committee that had to get things done. It was called the programming committee. We had five school assemblies a week before every single day of class. And the head of the programming committee had a program, two of those programs, and had to MC all five of those programs. So I got voted the head of the programming committee two years in a row. And at first, it was chattering. Um, you stage fright when you have to go in front of a, uh, an audience of 350 people who hate you. Um, is Stage fright is appalling. So I went through two months of stage fright and then getting in front of an audience of 350 became as natural to me as breathing. Um, and one day, the junior came to me, and they said, look, we're holding a dance. Can you advertise it for us? They didn't realize how absurd this request was. If there was a party of any kind, especially a dance, anywhere in Buffalo, New York, I would cordially invited to keep my feet as far away, preferably <laughs> Cleveland or Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. So, but despite that, I agreed to advertise their dance for them. So I... I put a piece of music on the turntable. Now, you have to understand something. I cannot dance. I cannot do the box step. I cannot do the box trot. I cannot do the waltz. Um, I make clots. Um, but I got up in front of that audience and started dancing. And because I can't dance, what this audience saw was like a Looney Tune drawn on a night when Chuck Jones <laughs> had dropped LSD. It was the craziest, most bizarre thing you've ever seen in your life. And I saw the pupils of the audience members dilate. And I saw their eyes widening. And I saw them melting into that kind of collective blob that I was part of at the Fleetwood Mac concert. And I saw that collective blob of energy reach a pseudopod out to me, like a tunnel. And its energy went through me and up to my head. I was having an out-of-body experience. I thought I was seeing this whole thing from the ceiling, watching my body dance. And I saw that collective energy of the audience go up to my head, become utterly transmogrified, and flow back down to the audience again in a continuous feedback loop. So everything I did, their pupils widened even more. Their their eyes um, grew wider. And when it came to the end of this event, 
Howard, I, I hate to cut you off, man, but we're less yeah. than a minute left on the Zoom um, meeting. I, I wish we had more time. I really do. We need to do schedule again uh, for another well, show. But the one thing I wanted to get to was your recent book was a memoir, How I Accidentally Started the 60s. Can that be bought on Amazon or do you have it a It can website? be bought on Amazon. And the most recent book is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll which is my adventures finding the gods inside of us in the world of Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, et cetera. Awesome. Well, we're going to have you back on again. Uh, we'll, we'll Because we were supposed to do this uh, back in October. Of course, we had a hurricane, so we had to reschedule this uh, for now. So thank you again for coming on the show. I'm so sorry we, we don't have a whole, a whole lot of time to do the show. Um, thank you again for coming on. We we didn't even get to a quarter of, of what we wanted to get to, so let's uh, let's reschedule for another a part two, and we'll come back and do it again soon. How, how okay, we'll do. Have have a great night um, with with no hurricanes. Yes, and we'll talk to you again very soon.